Season three, ladies and gentlemen, of Chewing the Gristle is upon us. We've got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're gonna let the good times roll. Are you ready to pound the gristle? We ride. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, another exciting week on Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Cockery. We have some rock and roll royalty, someone I used to play along with on records all the damn time, charter member of the supergroup, The Cars, the majestic and fleet-fingered and melodically-fingered Elliot Easton. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, another installment of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. I'm here with one of my idols, the mighty Elliot Easton, of course, of the cars and a variety of other exploits. But he joins us today from beautiful and sunny California. Is it actually sunny out there at this point in time? No, it's it's a gray, cold day, and it looks like it might rain. <laughs> i tell you the truth. Although cold... For California, is probably a different definition. I am. Yeah, it's it's a cold, you know, seventy one. <laughs> <you know. laughs> so, how you doing out there? What's the latest? Oh boy. Well, um, I'm doing okay. You know, like most of us, I'm just going crazy to get out, back out, and play and and do everything. You know, um, but I I do have a little project that I'm starting that. Uh, it it goes back to a couple of years ago. There was a memorial for a friend of ours here in L.A. who who helped all the musicians. His name was Alan Kaufman. Everyone called A.K. And he did all the China Club jams, all the uh, celebrity jam stuff, and all that. And every he knew everybody in town. And so when he passed, uh, we got a room at Center Staging Rehearsal there in Burbank and um, had a big party and everybody played. And one of the singers was a gentleman named Sir Harry Bowens Jr., who, along with um, Sweet P. Atkinson, were the two singers with Was Not Was. Oh, okay. Okay? Two Detroit singers. And, you know, everybody did their bit and played something on stage, and, and uh, A.K. even left requests, like he wanted me to uh, play um, Stage Fright by the band. Just funny little stuff. But when, but when Harry took over the stage, I looked at my wife because it became like an instant party. He like took that mic and it was like James Brown was up there. And I got this idea, probably a lot like yourself. I mean, there's a little Cornell Dupree and, and Reggie Young and, and Cropper and everything I do. You know, I, I love all, all those rhythm sections of Southern soul, you know, whether the Swampers or the, you know, the Motown guys. I, I love studio guitarists. I love parts playing. That's the kind of guy I am. And, and, and so, you know, I, my guitar playing has always been influenced by R and B and soul music, but I, you know, outside of playing, you know, knock on wood and midnight hour in my garage band when I was 13, I never really explored the genre to like, play it purely rather than just play soul influenced guitar like to have a full band doing that and uh i i saw this picture this old black and white photo of Jimi hendrix playing with wilson pickett 
and he had he had he had the jacket and the little crisscross tie, like the sixties tie, you know, like Sinatra, right. like Sinatra, you know. It looked so great. And I said, That's what I'm gonna do that. <laughs> and so we're gonna we're gonna make a little soul R and B band, I think. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. It does to me too. And I think the 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 opportunity to play like corporate parties, the music's all familiar and danceable and I think maybe we could do really well with it. Either way, it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's funny you should say that. I, was, I just was kind of working on a little version of uh, sitting on the dock of the bay earlier today, just like a little... Those parts of croppers back in the day were great. Cornell Dupree as well. You know, it's another fun thing is my nephew was over here the other day, and he's a budding guitar player, and he was curious about some a uh, couple of meters tunes. And so we started, uh, I started showing yeah. him, yes, yeah, some of those cool little chunky parts. And uh, it's just so interesting because that stuff is so nuanced and cool, but it gets glossed over because of the seeming simplicity of it. But it's not simple, and it's certainly not easy to get it right. No, it isn't. Not it's certainly because it's all feel, and being that we all have different nervous systems, <laughs> right? Right. Plus, I just like the you know the organic organic tones of all that stuff as well. Oh, it's wonderful. You know, you just just a telly into a deluxe. Exactly. You know, off to off, the races. You know, it's great. Off to the races. It's fun. It's fun. I don't know if it'll come to, to pass, but last few weeks I've been going to this soul R and B jam in Santa Monica. A lot of these guys show up and they have like a house band. Um, Cece, the bass player, was Diana Ross's uh, MD and the drummer plays on Jimmy Kimmel. And so they're all like real guys, you know. And I went to two weeks to jam with Harry singing and uh, they all want to be in the band. (laughs) So, you know, I was curious as you were saying that, I mean, at what point in your career did you end up moving out to L.A.? Was it pretty early on or... Because you're, you're a, uh, are, were you raised in the Boston area? You just went to school in Berkeley, or how, how did it all transpire in terms of locality? Okay, well, I I, I moved to Boston in '72 to go to Berkeley College of Music, but I was I just briefly I was born in Brooklyn, lived there till I was three, three to six I lived in Forest Hills, Queens, right with the you know, like next building to like Leslie West and Wadi Wachtel because my father. My dad had beauty salons in Queens, and he used to do Mrs. Weinstein's hair, Leslie's mother. And Les and I figured that out. We would crack it, crack this up. And then from there, I moved out to Massapequa, Long Island, when I was six. And that's where I graduated high school and basically grew up out on out the island. And so graduate high school. I couldn't afford Berkeley the first year out of high school, so I went to a state university. And then in 72, I made it up to Boston. I, I, did, I didn't get to L.A. after all that stuff was over. I got to L.A. in 93. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I've been here for quite a while, but all that other time I was on the East Coast. So when you were a youngin on Long Island, I mean, what kind of stuff were you listening to? Because your soloing styles, I mean, it obviously shows, you know, uh, great depth in terms of, I mean, your parts playing and so on and so forth. Obviously, you listen to, as we were just discussing, all the R&B people and certainly all the cool Beatlesque parts and so on and so forth. But, I mean, you're, the bending yeah. and the tone and all that kind of stuff, you know, telegraphs the fact that you listen to all the blues guys and in the, the early, you know, Clapton era blues breaker stuff and all that kind of stuff. So what was kind of your, uh, your pedigree as you were coming up? Uh, Amos Garrett, big guy for me. The two-string bends and a lot of the things I do, uh, I, I, I kind of learned from Amos, whether he, with Paul Butterfield's Better Days, 
or Ian and Sylvia's Great Speckled Bird. He was in, you know, he, he I followed Amos, you know, uh, uh, Jeff and Maria Moldauer records. And I loved Amos Garrett. I loved, oh gosh, Mike Bloomfield, Otis Rush, Jerry Miller with Moby Grape, um, Garcia up to about 71 or so. I, I liked John McLaughlin when he first got to New York, not Mahavishnu, but Devotion and Jack Johnson and, and, that, and that stuff. I, I, I like that. But what other influence? James Burton, uh, Roy, Bu- Roy Buchanan was a big one. Roy Nichols, um, like almost anybody good who ever played a Telecaster. Jesse Ed Davis, I was big into Robbie Robertson and Jesse. I loved the band and I loved that Taj, Taj's electric band, you know, the one from... Take a giant step in the and na- the natural blues, that that band just killed me. And then you know they weren't really popular, and you kind of like felt like you knew about something a lot of other people didn't know about. And then to find out that like they go across to England to play the rock and roll circus, and he starts jamming Bebopalula with Lennon, and all of a sudden they're they're like brothers. And he starts playing on all these other projects, and the Stones and the Beatles all love that Taj band. Just the same way they loved the band, and 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 the same way they loved Delaney and Bonnie, uh, you know, there was a thing in England. They just loved those bands, right? And and they inf- and they influenced like bands like Matthew Southern Comfort, you know, or you know, uh, 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 Elton John's Tumbleweed Connection, you know, things like that. Fairport Convention, you know, it's sort of folk rocky thing, but more with an English slant. But for me, for guitar, I'm at Clarence White. Um, so, so many, Greg, I mean, probably like yourself. I mean, and then, you know, slightly influenced by some jazz players. I mean, I'm a huge jazz fan, although I would never in a million years consider myself to be a jazz player, but I'm pretty knowledgeable about jazz music and about jazz guitarists. And, and I have my, you know, my favorites that I love with that too. And I love guitar, you know, when I was three years old, I used to sit in front of the TV in Brooklyn watching the the Native American test pattern. <laughs> I don't want to be on PC because back then, this is 1956, and it wasn't 24-hour programming. There was like blank spaces where there was nothing on. And I'd sit in front of the TV until the Mickey Mouse Club show came on. And and the and the host was a guy named Jimmy Dodd, and and they rigged up a little Martin tenor to look like Mickey Mouse. It was the mouse guitar with ears, put ears on it and stuff, if you remember. And um, and so I got, you know, the Mickey Mouse ukulele, you know, the plastic one, and it looked just like his. And then sometime that same year, it was 56, I saw Elvis on television. And I immediately, <laughs> the, it's one of those family stories that everybody tells like at Thanksgiving and laughs about. I brought my mother a glass of water and a comb. And I had to comb my hair back, like, you know, to a duck's ass in the back with the waterfall like Elvis and I grabbed my Mickey Mouse guitar and we had this little credenza in the living room with a mirror that was like my height I was like three and I'm in the mirror checking myself out with the guitar and the haircut and I'm, I'm like a rocker at three you know so yeah so so you know it wasn't like necessarily even just rock and roll I was just in love with the guitar whether it was Roy Rogers I had a Roy Rogers guitar and you know and Gene Autry and the Cowboys and, and Mickey Mouse Club and the early rock and rollers for some reason, my antenna was up to that. I'll tell you what, a little background. My mom was a Juilliard-trained singer and had her own show, uh, radio show as a teenager. 
on Don't Laugh, but on Yiddish radio in Brooklyn, in New York, uh, but sponsored by Hershey's Chocolate. And and she was like a, a great sort of pop singer, like a Rosie Clooney kind of singer, like a really good singer. Um, and so she started me off listening to like, you know, Gershwin, you know, and, and like, you know, the, the Eastern European composers, Shostakovich and Kachaturian and Rimsky-Korsak, all that. She loved all that. And so, so I got a really good musical education at a young age. I always loved music. And um, there was just something about the guitar. I don't know what it is, but anybody playing a good guitar, and I loved it. And, you know, I remember, you know, Elvis blew me away. But then I saw the Everly Brothers, and in, in my young age, I thought they were even cooler. There was something about the way they the, 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 the way they held them low down by their knee with the neck going up and this and they looked so great and something. So I just flipped for the Everly Brothers, which probably explains a lot about my love for the Beatles because they're, that that harmony, you know, those brother harmonies. <laughs> but it's interesting because you were like way ahead of it because you know age wise, most people you know would have had their aha moment at the Beatles at Ed Sullivan, but you were way ahead of the curve. It seems. Well, I. I I had that moment, but I'd already had was playing like like ventures and pipeline and surf songs before the Beatles before the Beatles came out. I was already playing, and you know, and so I, the popular music because just before the Beatles came out, if you remember, like there wasn't like like the the top forty wasn't very guitar centric. It was girl groups and and maybe Motown and but it wasn't like a lot of like out front guitar and mu music for a young kid who wanted to hear a lot of guitar back then was like surf music and Dwayne Eddy and the ventures and stuff. And that was the stuff that, you know, featured guitar. And so that's what I graduated, gravitated towards as a eight, nine year old. And then of course I was 10 when the Beatles played that, that first night on Sullivan. What was it? February 9th, 1964. And yeah, see, see, I was I was born in '66, so I missed all this. <laughs> Greg, I'm going to tell you the, the the total truth from my heart. I didn't fall asleep that night. My whole body was vibrating. I was shaking and tossing and turning because I knew that there'd been some kind of quantum shift, like that the Earth had like shifted on its axis, or at least my world had. And I knew that nothing would ever be the same for me after I saw that. It was like. It was like looking into the future. And, of course, me and 10 million other kids looking into the future and how many are lucky enough to get anywhere near realizing that dream. And and nobody compared success to the, to the level of a phenomenon like the Beatles, but I did get to realize my dreams of childhood. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember standing on stage at Live Aid and saying to Ben, I said, you know, man, this is the top of the mountain. We've, we've done it, you know? And moments like that are so precious to me because I'm not jaded about it at all. I'm, I have a lot of gratitude. And sometimes I feel like I'm watching a movie about my own life <laughs> 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 because I've been so lucky with it. You know, I mean, there's so many wonderful guitar players out there, fantastic guitar players uh, who can do things I could never do. And um, so I consider myself very fortunate to 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 have what I what I what what I do be enjoyed by so many people and accepted by the not only the music and fans but by the guitar community it means a lot to me to be friends with all you guys and be, be part of the brotherhood. 
Well, I'll tell you what, I, I consider, you know, a lot of your solos to be the, the epitome of what a rock and roll guitar solo should be. I mean, just what I needed just in and of itself is like a magnum opus of considerable proportion. As far as I'm concerned, it's just perfect. And the, and just the way that it, you know, it navigates chord changes. It, the tone is magnificent. It's exciting as hell. I mean, you, it's one of those tunes when it comes on the radio, you can't not crank it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's, you know, it's the James Burton thing. It's like the solos sound composed. They don't sound like you're just kind of like flipping off licks in the key of the song. They they follow right. they follow the changes. They have a melodic contour, and 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 you can walk away whistling them. And I think that's yes, that's the thing for me. That's a key thing. Like I never had a desire to to play like a club for or or a concert hall for a room full of other guitarists. I wanted to play music for people to enjoy and that you could walk away whistling the solo. And Burton's like that, you know, Fool's Rush In or any of those solos, you can you can sing them to yourself. And, and that's what I tried to do with mine. They're like little mini compositions within the song, utilizing the same changes and maybe taking off from the, from the, the vocal melody and taking it someplace else and setting it back down so the singer can come back in. That's the, that's the trick. Absolutely. Well, I think... You know, what's interesting about what you did in the cars was the was exactly that. These solos that you could whistle, but they were also, I mean, they were guitar solos. You know, it almost seemed like, you know, not even that much later, it's like and if you if it sounded like you knew what you were doing on the guitar, you were like um you know, a heretic. You know what I mean? I know. Kind of, You'd be ashamed for being in tune. <laughs> right. <laughs> and by the same token, on the other aspect of things, you know, you had other people treating guitars like farm animals. Not that there's anything wrong with that if that's what you're into. Well, actually, there's nothing good about that. But I'm, I'm talking about, you know, all the pyrotechnic stuff. <laughs> but it was kind of like one extreme or another. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and everything that you did was just... I mean, I just remember, you know, I had just started playing guitar. So I started playing guitar in 1979, right? I was 12 years old in 79. That sounds about right. And um, and I, I listened to all the stuff my brother was into. I was the youngest of seven kids. My brother had all, and he was the oldest. I was the youngest. We were both boys. There were five girls in between. So I had all of his records that I would listen to. So it was all, you know, Beatles, Stones, Cream, James Gang, Hendrix, O'Plenty, uh, and, and then that led me to, I was reading about all these different, you know, I'd read something about Hendrix and I was very studious at a very young age. Like, what is, what is this stuff? And I would see these names, you know, you know, BB King, Albert King, Holland Wolf, Muddy. So I, I began to research what all these different things were, but at that particular juncture, it was, it was a frustrating time to find, uh, at least in my limited worldview of what I was exposed to at that point in time, pop radio was not exactly filled with. Um, the greatest guitar playing things that spoke to that connection to that older generation. So the things that really stuck out to me was like Mark Knopfler and the cars. I mean, that first cars record, I sat down and I played along with that thing. I was like, this is, I, I heard where all these different things were coming from and try to get my fingers around it, and the tone was glorious. And I remember seeing, I remember seeing a, um, it's like MTV had just started. And that was just so exciting. You know, as we all know, it's like back in the day, I mean, to see anybody 
uh, playing guitar on television was like unheard of, right? And all of a sudden MTV comes out and of course there was the initial videos, but they would also do a thing like on Sunday nights where they would play like a concert by a band. And you just couldn't believe it. You know, you finally were able to see, you know, Jimmy plays Berkeley or, you know, whatever, or, yeah. or the farewell cream thing. But there was also a thing where it was the cars and it, it, the police. It looked like that the same venue. And I don't know where it was, but it was, but do you remember that? Were you on the same bill or was it just the same venue where you guys were, you know, there one night and then the next, but they, the, the what was the band? It was the police. They played. And then you guys played. Gee, I mean, we played the US Festival. I don't know. Now, this is like a club. I, it may have been like Rock Palace or something like. I don't yeah, really remember. I, I, I don't. I don't really. I don't either, to be honest with you. But I just remember you. You did all the tunes from you know the, the first record, and I remember that Red Les Paul. I remember. I remember the Tally. I remember the Marsh. You know, I remember all that stuff. And just thinking, now this is a band. <laughs> <laughs> but what it was just such an exciting time. What makes me curious? So, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, just such an exciting time. I mean, it really was. We'd never been anywhere, and all of a sudden, Roy Thomas Baker says, "How would you like to go to London and make an album at George Martin's Air Studios?" You know, like, you know, it was just mind blowing. It was unbelievable. So, how did you make the with all the guys in the cars? I mean, how did it all come together? Well, that was fairly organic. I, you know, I was going to Berkeley, and I, I really didn't want to move back to Long Island during the summers because it was just Long Island at that time, at least, was a very top forty scene, and I didn't want to do that. So I, I ended up playing country music down in the area of Boston they call the Combat Zone, which was like the equivalent of New York's Forty Second Streets, where all like the, the, the strip bars and the peep shows and like the. the definite crime element. It was a scary place to be. And there's this little country bar there. And I played country music, 25 bucks a night for eight sets a night or eight till two in the morning, whatever that was. And, um, and, and, you know, eventually you start meeting other musicians in town and, and bands form and bands fall apart. And, 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 you know, you get the best guys from bands and you put, put a new one together. But if you want the story, the actual genesis of how the cars came together, I'd be happy to tell it to you. Yes, please. It's kind of a funny story. Well, earlier I referred to my friend A.K., Alan Kaufman, at, at, at his memorial where I saw Harry Bowen sing. Well, this goes back 45, 48, seven years ago, whatever it was, and Alan and I were roommates. And he he was um, a sound, he liked to mix sound for bands. He was like a front of house guy. That's what he was. He ended up doing it for many many years for Smokey Robinson, and he, he did have a career in it. Anyway, he ad he answered an ad in I think the Boston Phoenix or the Real Paper, one of those local Boston papers, for a sound man. And um, we were roommates. I didn't have anything to do that night, so I went along with him to the gig just to see what this band was like. And it was a band called Richard and the Rabbits. And I found out that uh, later that Jonathan Richmond from the Modern Lovers gave gave them the name Richard and the Rabbits. But that band consisted of Rick, Ben Orr, Greg Hawks, and um, a, a different drummer and a different guitarist. And it was it was the funniest thing. What the gig turned out to be was a Warner Brothers party for Foghat at a roller skating rink. <laughs> That's a whole lot of imagery. <laughs> and, and Richard and the Rabbit. 
I tell you what, and, and and Richard and the Rabbits were the hired entertainment for the party, okay? And people could, could skate if they wanted to or do whatever, and it was just a big party. And I was struck by the songs, is what really hit me, is that, you know, I'd seen a lot of local bands, and you know how it was back then, we'd go, oh, we're going to play an original now, and it'd be some real crappy song, you know, it's like, you know, get back to what you were doing before, and Rick's tunes was the first time I'd heard in a local band songs that didn't be records and that and hits like you know really good songs. I felt that there was somewhat some something left to be desired in the arranging, and like every guitar player, I thought, oh, I could do better than that, you know, because that's what <laughs> guitar players do. But and I'm friends with the guitar player, but he was playing more like in an almost a fusiony kind of style, and I really felt that, you know, it was pop. It was like a, a pop thing, and I knew exactly what the songs needed. And but I didn't get a chance to play with them for quite a while. What happened was Greg quit the group to join Martin Mull's Fabulous Furniture on sax, and the band broke up. And and Rick and Ben started playing in Harvard Square at a little pub called the Idler under the name Ocasican Or, And they sat on two stools, and Rick played a, a Martin D28, and Ben played a, a Rickenbacker bass, and they sang, you know, um, some some of Rick's songs, and they sang some of the hits of the day. I remember they sang, like, How Long Has This Been Going On, and uh, Do It Again, Steely Dan. Those were the years it was, kind of, you know. And Alan was still with them, still mixing front of house, only it was just two guitars and two mics to blend. So he'd get that, he'd get the level set, then he'd jump up with them and play congas because he loved to play percussion. All the while, hyping them on his roommate, Elliot. You got to hear my roommate play guitar. He's so, he's an amazing guitar player, overhyping me. Just, you got to hear this guy. And I'm like, Alan, you know, take it easy. So finally, I had an opportunity I got invited over to Ben's in Somerville and I went over to Ben's apartment and he sits there like this with his arms crossed, sitting, looking across from me and he goes, okay, play something amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So of course I was paralyzed. I I couldn't play anything. And we eventually, you know, calmed down and had a few laughs and maybe a few tokes and, uh, you know, just loosened up and started playing music and, and it was good and they liked my sound and, and, and I enjoyed playing with them. So that developed into a band. Greg still hadn't come back. Uh, that developed into a band called Captain Swing. And um, that was Rick and Ben and myself and Danny Lewis on keyboards, who now is with Government Mule and a, and a different drummer who was like a, like a Billy Cobham, like press roll so here's what happened so we we went to the famous club in new york maxis kansas city to do um a showcase gig for some of the big management companies and bill o'coin was there who had kiss and at the time billy squire or piper or whatever and um libran krebs had aerosmith and they, they they came down to see us at maxis and um they had some really constructive criticisms for the band they said look the songs are great. It's a good band, but your image is all over the place. The songs are a little long and jammy. You should make them more concise, maybe shorten up a little on the jamming kind of part of it and get your image together. Because the, you see, you see your, Ben wasn't playing bass in that band for some crazy reason. He was just singing lead. 
And the bass player looked like he should be in the Grateful Dead. And the drummer played like he should be in the Mahavishnu Orchestra. And Danny refused to get a synthesizer. He said, I could just do it by putting fuzz on my Fender Rhodes. And he was driving us nuts. And so we went, we went back to Boston. And with all those comments in mind and with our tails between our legs, we went back to Boston. We took it to heart and we really tried to fix everything that they said was wrong. We knew the drummer was wrong and too, too fusion techno. And so we got David from the Modern Lovers, just a big two four. That's all we really wanted anyway. Greg came back into the band um, where he belonged all along. And we put Ben back on bass, which he should never have been taken off of. It, 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 Greg was unbelievable. We played that gig at Max's with Kansas with Captain Swing. Ben, ben was wearing a peach colored karate gi made of like silk shantung that his wife made him. <laughs> I'm, and the bass player played like a guild alembic, like Jack Cassidy and Phil Lesh with knobs and filters all over it. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. I mean, when I say like we were all over the place, we were all over the place. Right. I, <laughs> so that's why those criticisms, we, we, we appreciated it, you know, because they told us the truth and um, they were right. And so we, we, we fixed those things and... Then it was the cars. David came up with the name, our drummer came up with the name of the cars. And um, we made a live two track tape. And the top DJ at Boston uh, was a, 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 at WBCN in Boston was a gal named Maxanne Sartori. And she started playing our demo tape in heavy rotation. So what happened was a thing that you could, you can't make this up. It could n never happen today. If you know about radio, like Billboard magazine, they subscribe to these tip sheets, radio tip sheets like the Gavin Report back then and the Wednesday morning quarterback and these things. And all the radio stations would subscribe to these tip sheets. And so they'd see what the, the, the big markets were playing so that the secondary and tertiary markets knew what was hot and what was coming up the charts and, oh, we should start playing Fleetwood Mac, you know, you know whatever the trends were right. in the country. They'd stay abreast of it by subscribing to these sheets and the way the sheets were listed, it would be like the artist, the song and the label. So for a couple of weeks on, on the Gavin report, it would say WBCN Boston, one of the biggest markets of the country. You'd say, say like Aerosmith back in the saddle, Columbia, uh, Elton John, goodbye, yellow brick road, MCA rocket, the cars, just what I needed tape. <laughs> it's crazy you can't make this up so all the A&R guys subscribe to these tip sheets too and, they, and, and so in New York the A&R people go what the hell's going on in Boston there's a band being reported on a national level and they haven't even got a record out so <laughs> it didn't take you know a lot of brains to say we better get up to Boston and see what's going on up there and they, they started flying up to Boston to check us out from, you know, all the labels were in New York and that led to our record contract. So that's, that's the story. <laughs> we interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle infested conversation to give a special shout out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch signature Fluence Gristle Tone pickup set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. So, 
from there, I mean, how close were those arrangements that you were doing? Obviously, just what I need must have been pretty close to what ended up on the record. Yeah. Other than like the huge lush background vocals, which, you know, required Roy Thomas Baker's expertise and also a million tracks to, to, to overdub and bounce down and layer all that. Besides like the, the huge vocals, the arrangements were pretty much the same. I think I might have already had the solos together. Haven't listened in a while. But there, those demos are on the Cars Anthology on Rhino. So if anyone wanted to check them out, they're on there. Oh, that's cool. I'll have to check those it's, out. It's the purple sparkle one. Awesome. Well, and then as far as image, I mean, you guys kind of were fashion icons. I mean, you're quite the uh, quite the snappy dresser. Well, how did that all develop? Did you guys like... Did you guys all go, hey, I'm going to do this? Or was it kind of like, we should all stick within this realm? Or how did it all pan out? Was it just kind of an organic thing, or was it more calculated? I'll tell you exactly what it was. We, we wanted to look like a band, and we were poor. And we said, let's let's just wear black and white, because you can get a black T-shirt and some black jeans, and you, it'll look like a band. And then when the band started getting success and earning some money, we stayed with that color seat scheme and added red to it. And we stayed, we stayed like all the way up through like shake it up. We wore black, white, and red, all of us, like on all those, all those tours. And then we opened it up. I think heartbeat city. We, we said the hell with it, you know, but, but we had, we had a look and it was a look that you, you didn't need a lot of money to achieve. So that's why it made a lot of sense. And then if you had money, you could get beautiful black and white clothes. <laughs> that is funny as hell. Yeah. So your rig back then, it looked like, did you, you kind of did, did you do the classic kind of twin Marshall thing and go back in between? Or what, what did you have going on back then? Because it was majestic. It, it was various different things. Early on, it was just stuff we could get a deal on, to be honest with you. So early on, I had an Ampeg VT44. Oh, yeah. And Rick had a VT-22, but I liked the 410 one. And we just knew a guy, like, had a music store work for He had these amps, so we got these amps. The next ones that he came up with that didn't cost us anything, I think, were the Gibson Lab amps, which was solid state. Oh, yeah, the Lab Series, yeah. Yeah, yeah the Lab Series, and I played those for a while. And then there was another solid state amp that my tech discovered called Pierce. Oh, yeah. And I played... <laughs> I played those for a minute. But if I had to characterize what my basic rig was, I mean, because I, I did the Bradshaw route. I had a refrigerator-sized Bradshaw rig with Mesa Boogie simul class and half-open, half-closed cabinets. and The whole nine. All, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a whole nine and, and a Plexi 50-watt that I could kick in. And, you know, and, you know back then, it, there was no multi-effects processor, so it wasn't like... I remember the when the SPX90 and the A1 came out, you know, because we used to buy like the TC, you know, 2290, it'd be like, this, you know, three rack spaces just for delay. Right. Or the spatial expander just for chorus, you know. And now, you know, that's just one button on a single rack space little thing. So I had the, you know, the big, the big rack. I'd say, though, what I really settled in and, and what I probably... I don't know. It just seems like when I think of playing a car show, what I think of like most readily are a couple of JCM 800s, half stacks set set it at, at butt level, not not at ear level, with some boss pedals, 
and, uh, and, a, and an extra foot switch to kick in an even tight harmonizer for the solo and since you're gone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, it sounded, so it sounded like it was coming through the Lincoln Tunnel. Right. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, that's simple. You know, after the Bradshaw rack, it was like a pleasure. We did Saturday Night Live and there just wasn't room on stage or for all that nonsense. And my tech went to 48th Street to, to Sam Ash bought one of those plastic boss carrying cases, filled it with the typical pedals that I would need, and I loved it <laughs> after all that. I loved it. Sure. See, I, I wouldn't even know how to turn on my Bradshaw rig, you know? And it sounded to me just as good. I, I don't, it sounded great, you know? Right. And, and so I actually went with that for a while. But, I, you know, I tried a lot of different things, but... Largely Marshall JCM 800s, I'd say, with the bulk of it. Crazy. Yeah. So what, you know, as when you were coming up and, and uh, advancing on guitar, what, what was being a left-hander? What, what did that detract from or advantage from as far as gear, catching what other people are doing? Do you feel like it was a, you had a different experience as a result of that or is it just... You're like left-handed. That's just the way it is, and be done with it. Well, it was a process um, because at first I didn't know there was a difference. And there's pictures of me at age three, and I'm holding the guitar left-handed. And it's just the way I held it. Um, and it wasn't until I started getting some proficiency on the guitar that I realized that backward stringing was holding me back. And so then I took, took my guitar to a mom and pop shop and had them turn the nut around and, and redo the bridge for me and 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 set set it up for left-handed and then and then I realized you know I could do so much more as far as being a left-handed player in a right-handed world I've never seen it as a problem because if you think of it if I'm sitting across from you and we're like playing and showing each other some cool licks it's mirror image both our necks are going in the same direction right I'm looking I'm looking straight at your guitar. You're looking straight at mine. Both necks are going the same way because it's, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. It's actually, in a way, easier to learn from somebody lefty-righty because the way when you face them, it, it, the orientation is perfect. So I don't, I, don't, I don't know. You know I mean? I don't know what it is to be right-handed. I have no idea. So, uh, uh, but I've done all right, you know. I would probably have a lot more vintage guitars if I was right. Yeah, I was, was going to ask you that. I mean, that, that's the thing I see a lot of people like, why isn't this guitar available left-handed? So I'm, I'm wondering, it, did that have anything to do with your choices of instruments when you were in your formative well, me, years? Well, yes, it did. But I, but, but, but I, made, but I made it up for it later. <laughs> Look at that. Oh, that is delicious. Bound block inlays. That's beautiful. We're looking at a Telecaster right now, folks. For those of you who can't see through your podcast, Ice Blue got- Metallic, Lindy Fraylin True True Sixty PAF in the front. Nice. <laughs> anyway, so you know there were much less choices, um, but here's a, here's another great story. I think you I think you really enjoy this. I was guitar crazy. I used to write away to all the companies for catalogs and. I'd, slip them into my books at school and read them, and I would draw guitars. You might have been the same. You know, I was obsessed oh, with guitars. I, 
I would draw the Beatles stage set up, you know, with the logo and everything on the drums. Just obsessed. So I finally uh, was, I ordered my first left-handed Fender Telecaster. And I washed dishes in a restaurant to earn money for it. And it was a store called Grayson's in Freeport, New York, Freeport, Long Island. And it was Bernie Grayson and his father who started the Pop Grayson, who we used to call Louis Dombrowski because he looked like the guy from, from the, the Bowery Boys, the sweet shop, oh, the, okay. the, the old man. He looked just like that. So we called him Louis Dombrowski. Now, I was so guitar mad that I would take the bus several towns away, and I was just a kid, just to sweep the floors, help Danny in the stock room, just to be around guitars. That's how much I loved them. And I'd call, you know, every few days, I drove Bernie nuts. Is the guitar in yet? Is it? Like, he wouldn't have called me if the guitar came in, you know? <laughs> you know how crazy I was. Finally, I, I went in one day to help out, just to be hang out with them, and he took in on a trade a lefty Fender Jaguar that someone had sanded and painted psychedelic. And it was a mess, you know, but but it worked functionally. He goes, Elliot, he goes, do me a favor. Take this guitar home and you can play this one until your guitar comes in. Which was on two levels was the kindest thing in the world. Who, who does that? Who right. does that? And B, it got me off his back. I had a guitar <laughs> I was literally driving him nuts, and I'd stay till the end of the day. And it was and and it was nighttime. It was dark, and I was fifteen, sixteen. Sometimes he'd give me a ride home. He he lived the next town over from me. Okay, so all all that happened, right? So roll up. I don't know. Nine years later, and I'm at the Nam convention at McCormick Place when they still had it in Chicago. Right, and I see Bernie Grayson standing across across the way at, at, at maybe the at the Gibson booth, somebody's booth. Excuse me. That's so, right. I uh, I walk over to him. I said, Bernie. I said, you might not remember me. My name is Elliot. And before I get another word out, he goes, I, I, "Well, no, no." I said. You know, remember me? I used to hang, you know, drive you crazy and hang out at the store a lot. I don't know if you remember, but I, I'm in a band now called The Cars, and we're having good success. And, and, and I want to just say hello to you. Thank you. You kind of, he had tears in his eyes. He grabs me and drags me over to his wife. He goes, honey, this is the kid I was always telling you about. <laughs> that is wild so did he know who you were i mean did he had he been following your career up to that point or was he like oh my god no it's but, you. no but he was so happy to hear about it but he never forgot me and then he i told him that i had actually made it and he, he, had, he had tears in his eyes oh, that's he, fantastic. He, he used to tell his wife about me but i didn't know that but that's how crazy for guitars i was oh i believe it so uh are you the kind of person, I mean, like, I I tell people all the time, like, you know, as you mentioned when we first started talking about how these are strange times and you'd love to be out playing and doing what we all do, but I just like sitting in the corner and playing a guitar. Are you that way? Do you wake up in the morning and you get a little coffee and just sit down and start playing, or or, or do you have to, or do or there have to be more of a purpose to what you're doing? You know, unless I have to, like, specifically learn something for either a gig or, you know, or a you know, concert or something like that. Um, 
I don't like sort of sit and practice and run scales all day long. So I, I, I always like to have a guitar in my hand. And I, you know, if I'm watching TV, there's a guitar in my lap and I'm playing along with the commercials. I'm, I'm not like an inveterate, like hard practice hours a day of like, you know, running scales and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I'll tell you something. We've got a little bit of time left, and I'll give you a theory. Absolutely. I, I have a theory about this, about shredding and and players and stuff like that. And, and I don't know, maybe if it makes sense to some of your listeners, maybe it would offer some comfort if they're frustrated. But the way I feel about it is, just like your fingerprint, we're all wired differently. Some people have a slow, laconic way of speaking some people talk real fast, you know, walk fast or walk slow. And it's the way they're wired. Right. It's, it's the speed at which their nervous system runs. When, and like when I was at Berkeley, there were guys there who were only playing guitar for six months and they could shred because that was the speed they ran at. Whereas I could practice from now until doomsday and I will never be a shredder. Right. I could play some speed, I can play some speedy passages, you know, but, but not, nothing like, sweet picking or shredding or any of that kind of stuff. It's not, I'm not wired for it. And it's just like, like vibrato is like a fingerprint. If you hear one right. note, BB King, you know, it's BB King. Right. It's his, and, and that's his nervous system. Right. His vibrato, how, how he shakes his hand. And so I, I really do believe that we're all wired at a, our own internal speed. And that's as, as fast as we're ever going to play. Right. You know, and, oh, and and then I always make a joke about it because I, I I don't like to play faster than I can think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because I, I, you know, I, I often use the um, uh, the speaking analogy uh, if I'm teaching somebody and I talk about how improvising should be like telling a story. And, uh, you know, and when you learn a new lick or whatever. I mean, just because you learn a new word doesn't mean you put it in a sentence that doesn't make any sense, you know, and this type of stuff. But I also get to the, the fact of, you know, vibrato and and phrasing to me is is what interested me in guitar playing anyway. And as far as I'm concerned, it's like I that's the stuff that I uh, it's that's I you know, when I practice, it's it's not really practicing. I just play, but it's always in a state of refinement because to me you know, I don't know if you had a similar experience, but I, you know, there was something about the way Clapton phrased in in Cream. You know what I mean? There's just, I, it never gets old to me. You know, I could just, you know, it, it, there was a video of him sitting with the, you know, that SG that was painted, the, you know, the fool SG. Yeah, we did, does the Wawa, the woman. Right. And then just prior to that, There's he just goes, that, he just slides. That, like in the, so, like in the. Like the the, we, the wheels of fire, some of the long solos where the where the beat gets turned around to da da doom da da doom da da doom. Right, and I still I still do that. I still love that. I, exactly. There's just something. I mean, you. I always make the thing of you knew that his vocabulary wasn't huge. You knew what he was going to probably do in every solo, but you loved hearing it different every time. You know what I mean? It it was great. I loved Cream. You want you want to know my first rock concert I ever went Please. to? Please, I'm a little. Jimi Hendrix opening for the Monkees at Forest Hills, oh, Tennessee. Oh, my God. So you got to see one of those ill-fated shows. I did, one of those famous shows. And, how, and, and what was that it, like? It was, if you had told me that Jimi Hendrix was dropped in from another planet, it would have been easier for me to accept 
than what I was watching. Because this was 67. He just played Monterey. We hadn't had any of his records yet. Didn't know who he was. We were playing Mo's Rights and Jazz Masters and with, and, and with clean, reverby tone where distortion was a dirty word. You'd look at the specs of the amplifier. Oh, zero distortion. This must be a really good amp. <laughs> but the, the point of it, I would never heard a guitar go, right. never heard that sound like a woman wailing or something. Never heard a guitar make that noise. And if when you hear that for the first time you've ever heard it in your life and you play guitar, you're like, what the F is right. that, man? What the F is going on there? And he was, you know, he was having sex with the guitar and humping it and playing it. And meanwhile, it's all little 11, 12-year-old girls going, Davey, Mickey. Right. For the monkeys, and their mothers are covering their eyes, and Jimmy's like, you know, having sex with his amp. And I even remember like the tonality of his voice. He was like, "Please listen, you know, come on, man, just please listen to us, and give us a chance." And and he he only got through a few songs, uh, but I'll never forget it. And uh, that was my first rock well, concert. Yeah, if you can remember, what was the volume like? Because I always think about back in the day where the PA's were nothing, so it was pretty much stage volume, right? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it wasn't like anything like a loud rock concert like we think of today with like big, you know, like two big piles on either side of the stage or anything like right. that. It was loud enough to hear, but it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it, wa it wasn't what I would even call real loud. It was just like decently audible. You know, it was like, like a record turned up. Wild. Just about. Yeah, Hendrix is, is another one, one of my yeah. all-time favorites. But there again is another individual where it's like I it never gets old to me. I, I'm I'm uh, I've talked about this on many of these these chats that I do. But you know, I I go online at night when I'm going to sleep, and I'll find I mean, you know, various different things to listen to. It, it changes, but a lot of times people have been uploading these bootleg Hendrix things, which are now you can listen to on YouTube. And uh, there are various different audio qualities, but there are some certain eras of Hendrix where it's just otherworldly listening to that stuff. And and again, it's not he doesn't really play all that fast stuff, and that's never one of those things. I mean, I think that you know speed and all that kind of no, stuff. No, he's not. He's not a shredder. No, not at all. He's not a shredder. Not at all. But yet, as a guitar player, we all are like you know at the altar of Jimmy because it's just as you said, it's almost like it, he was dropped in from another planet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it really was. I mean, you know, he looked so different and he was a, a black man in this flower jumpsuit with two white guys with bushy afros. And it was just so foreign to anything that we'd ever seen before. And the sound, well, I mean, it was just, um, literally, he'd never heard that sound before. It was something completely new. And how often does that happen? Right, exactly. You know, so, it was amazing. So as you became more successful... Um, what were some of your interactions like with some of the uh, people you really looked up to? I mean, was there anything that stands out in your mind where, like, I got to the like at Live Aid or something? All of a sudden, I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with this person who I always really admired. Did anything stand out to you as as encounters once you had kind of made it? Um, you know, uh, I, there's a couple of specific ones. One, well, one just. It wasn't even that long ago. It was about five years ago, and I was playing. They have these concerts for uh, autism speaks uh, at the Wild Honey concerts here in 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 LA, 
and it was a tribute to Buffalo Springfield. Ah. And Don Don Randy from the Wrecking Crew was playing piano, and we were doing is it Country Girl, and he had like charts spread all over his piano, and I was playing it with him. And after it was all over, he he mouthed to me, "I want to play with you." <laughs> and it was like the, the greatest moment of my life. You know, it's like. This guy's telling me that he loves my playing enough that he wants to play music with me. And we stayed friends, you know, and talked a lot. And as far as like back then, you know, it was we we, we, we crossed paths with Cheap Trick a lot. And we were good friends with those guys. And uh, I went with Joel Danzig from Hammer Guitars to uh, Rick's house in Rockford. And we stayed overnight and he showed us his collection and had a great time. Um you know, I've met Dylan, like our, our our manager back then was Elliot Robertson. He managed Bob Dylan and and his partner managed Tom Petty and yes. And so you know, I went to a lot of Petty shows and a lot of a lot of uh Dylan's Dylan shows. So Dylan Dylan uh and the dead. Right. <laughs> Dylan with Petty. Um you know, I've had some good experiences. I've had some experiences I wish that I hadn't had because sure. it spoiled a little bit my enjoyment of the music. I yeah, I've mentioned. had that. Yep. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm just trying to think of some, some. You know, you know who have been so nice to me, like treat me like a little brother, are are um, Danny Korchmar and Waddy Walk. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Those two guys are so sweet and so nice to me. We're all from like Queens, New York, all from the same part. And they're like my big brothers, you know, because when I was a kid, all I, my, my goal was not to be necessarily a rock star at a certain point, but playing along with all those King Curtis records and stuff. I wanted to be a guy sitting on a stool with a Telecaster in my lap and earphones on. Right. That's what, that's what I wanted to be, (laughs) you know, and I, and I had that, you know, like uh, the Herbie Man, Herbie Man's Memphis Underground record, and there's like Reggie Young with his Telecaster, and I said, "That's what I want to do. I, I could just sit on that all day long, just back backbeat chicks, right. whatever the, you know. I love that stuff, absolutely. And, um, and those guys are economically that way, p- the way they play, and you know, uh, I, I'm sure, I'm sure with Danny, you know, with, with Steamroller Blues and some of the things he did had an impact on me, and. It's great to be their friends, but um, but those are two guys I have a whole lot of whole lot of good feeling about. That's awesome. Yeah, because you know, I think back of I mean, the Cars. I mean, one of the biggest bands of all time. Certainly, you've you the eighties were. It's like that was the biggest band in the world, as far as I was concerned. I mean, it was like every, it was you know everywhere you looked. Certainly on MTV and the whole nine yards, and I'm and I'm just wondering from from your point of view, coming from you know the beginning, and as you said, you're at Live Aid, and you look over at Ben, and say, can you believe this stuff? I mean, what were you able to take stock as it was all happening, or was it going by so fast? You had to do all this different stuff, and all of a sudden you're you're like, what, what, what? You know what I mean? I'm just wondering what the experience was like in retrospect. Well, when you're in the moment, you, 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 you're kind of nervous and just kind of concerned about doing a good job and am I in tune and my pedal's right. And you try and have fun. You try and enjoy it. But there's a lot of pressure. If it goes well, then you've got a lifetime to reflect back on what an amazing time you've had. But while you're doing it, you might not go, oh, boy, I'm having an amazing time. You're just doing the best you can. 
But then when you watch it back later and you go, hey, this is pretty cool, you know, and, and, and that's kind of like, you know. Right. That's kind of what process for so in the studio, when you're like cutting like a tune, like shake it up and it has that glorious guitar solo in it, was there, were, did you have the trust of your band guys and the producer to just say, Hey, I got an idea. It goes like this. Or was it, was it more, uh, how much input was there? Or did you have kind of a free hand to do it? They just trusted you. They just trusted me. I remember at the end of best friends go, it goes, it was Greg said, do that lick again at the end. But no, I, I wrote all my own solos and, and those are my own compositions and um, had n n virtually no input on, on, on that stuff. I didn't need any. Indeed. Awesome. Because they are, <laughs> they are glorious. Oh, God bless. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, anything else you're doing right now that you'd like to to tell us all about that maybe there's some some things that might be available recording wise or stuff like that that people might not be aware of that you'd like to tell them about well nothing nothing specifically um we're we're organizing our uh store we're gonna have a, a, a like a real store and when we have that set up we'll be able to issue like we have tapes of the cars live at the Rat, the Rat Skeller in Boston, which is like the CBGBs of Boston, but like concerts from before we were even signed and stuff. And we'll, we, we were thinking maybe we would put out some limited edition vinyl of some of these things and some of the King Biscuit Flower, you know, live concerts and stuff like that that we have. We have a lot of material. And we also have a bunch of Rick demos with finished vocals. And there may be some new Cars music that's a possibility. Cool. But, um, yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking some time for talking with us. It's been fascinating. It's just, uh, My what a wild ride you've had. Indeed. Indeed. I hope to, hope to have a little bit more to go. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> well, thank you. I hope to, we get to catch up in person one of these days. It would be a pleasure. I'd love that, Greg. I, that'd be great. And, and, I, I always get the biggest kick out of your Wildwood video. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you. I've enjoyed playing some of your glorious guitars over the years that they've had there. Well, you play them gloriously. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. All right, my friend, you have a good one. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning in to Chewing the Gristle. We certainly do appreciate it. On behalf of Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and our friends at Fishman Transducers, we say, don't be a stranger now. Keep on coming back. We're going to keep on giving her. <laughs> <laughs>